Our gospel lesson for the morning is found in Luke chapter 18. We are reading verses 9 through 14. And he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Almighty Father, we confess our faith this morning that the teacher is here and that he is calling for us. He is our Lord Jesus Christ and he speaks through all the scriptures. And so we ask God that you will speak for your servants are listening. Amen. Over the next seven weeks, we have the run-up to Easter, and we will take this time to interrupt our series in Hebrews. We will pick that up after Easter to focus on one particular topic that is particularly important during the season of Lent, and that is the theological topic of repentance. It's not a very popular word. It's not one that we always delight in, but what we will do over the next seven weeks is to approach that through the Psalms. And so this is why we read Psalm 51 this morning. And we will read other Psalms that are concerned with penitence or repenting and turning fresh to God. As some of you know, I spend copious amounts of time due to my academic pursuits studying the works of John Calvin, his sermons, his commentaries, his writings in the Institute. Each week I spend a good amount of time looking at those writings from a technical aspect. One of the things that is such a pleasure about Calvin is when he says something that is unexpected. In all of his wisdom and his wit, he was incredibly academic and also incredibly pastoral, and he will surprise me at times. This happened a few years ago when I was reading through book three of the Institutes, just kind of trudging along, and then I found a particular chapter that struck me. It ministered to me. It actually changed something about what I thought, and it changed the way I was actually living. But in book three of chapter three there, he offers a definition of repentance. And I have to confess that typically when I thought of repentance, I thought of a particular moment, the moment when we put our faith in Jesus and we turn to follow him, that that's what it means to repent. And Calvin says, yes, repentance is a moment, but it's also a movement. And he goes on to argue that repentance is the entirety of the Christian life. That the whole Christian life is the movement of repentance in which we turn away from the self and we turn towards God. In which we learn to say no to ourselves, to our inclinations, our thoughts, our actions, our wills. In which we turn to say yes to God and what he commands and what he finds to be good that it is the movement of the entire Christian life. And so over the next several weeks, we'll consider repentance as the way of the Christian life from the Psalms. 
And so the most important question for us this morning, as we begin this series, is to ask and answer this one question. What does repentance as a way of life involve for you, and what does it involve for me? In Psalm 51, we discover four things about repentance. We'll look at its basis. We'll look at the challenge of repentance. We'll also consider its orientation. And we'll finally look at its fruit. So let's look at each of those in turn. First, the basis of our repentance. If you turn to Psalm 51, you'll find that David begins his prayer of repentance. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. There's something unexpected here. David cries out to God for mercy, and then he requests forgiveness using three different metaphors. He asks God to blot out his transgressions. He asks God to wash him from his iniquity, and he asks God to cleanse him from his sin. He also uses three different words for wrongdoing. That was the entire Hebrew vocabulary for wrongdoing, iniquity, transgression, and sin. Three different words. David is obviously desperate for forgiveness. He multiplies metaphors. He uses all of his vocabulary that is available. He's asking for pardon on the backside of his extreme failures. But he requests that pardon based on one thing. And you find it in verse 1. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. And this is the thing that sometimes surprises us. That David roots his prayer of confession in the actual character and being of God. In the action of God and what God has done in Jesus Christ to forgive our sins. Because God is full of steadfast love and because God is full of mercy, this is what empowers us to go to him in repentance. And you see, so often for us, we think we perhaps have to bribe God or maybe we're just shooting in the dark that God might forgive us. And even on the backside of his tremendous failures, David doesn't go with any kind of anxiety or insecurity before God. He calls on the God who's full of steadfast love. He calls on the God who's full of mercy. And he presents himself to that God and asks him to forgive his sins. David can confess what he's done honestly to God because he knows who God is for him. And friends, that's the truth for you today as well, is that you can go in all your grime, you can go in all your filth, because who God is in Jesus Christ and what he has done to receive the condemnation of sin into himself on the cross, he has then exhausted the condemnation that sin deserves. And so you can go. That love precedes your repentance, and so God welcomes you to come to him, and to freely turn. Our lives oftentimes work very differently. I was reminded of this this past week. Last weekend, we traveled with our entire family to attend a funeral of one of my close college friends. He was actually a surge missionary in Bundabugio, Uganda. He welcomed Josh and Anna Dickinson to the field when they were both single. He's a wonderful man, strong testimony of faith, and just an early death. 
But his death was the occasion for a reunion, which a large group of guys who were all close friends at Furman gathered back in Asheville, North Carolina. A wonderful chance to catch up. And of course, there was a lot of storytelling that went on. One of the stories, much to my chagrin, that was mentioned multiple times was a particular prank that I and a few others pulled that went very, very wrong. Outrageously wrong. There was what you would call collateral damage if you were in the military. And that means there were certain people who were impacted by that prank that we never intended. I received some phone calls the next day that were indicating that blast zone of what had happened. And one in particular was an old widow who lived in town, and we had frightened her. I heard that report, and I was crushed. Suddenly, what was funny, I just looked immature. (laughs) I I was just thinking, there is no way out of this. And so I can only do one thing. I have to go to this lady's house. I remember pulling up to the house, and I was filled with anxiety. I was going to apologize to this lady, but I had no clue what her response was going to be. Was she going to call the police? Was she going to shame me? Was she going to tell me, how dare you, as someone aspires to be, who aspires to be a minister, how dare you do this? Or was she going to forgive me? I didn't know. I didn't know her. I didn't know what she was like. I just knew I simply needed to apologize. And friends, this is how we so often approach God. We come with all of our cares and anxieties, and we're not exactly sure. We think, I might have really done it this time. I might have pushed him over the edge. Is he going to listen to me? But we can approach with a conviction. This is where Psalm 51 draws us. That we are to come in the knowledge of God's steadfast love and his mercy. And that steadfast love and mercy is to draw us out. It frees us to actually own our sins before God. What we've done and what we've become. And we can know that there is a willing and eager God to receive us as we confess our wrong and as we look to him. This is the basis of our repentance, that who God has revealed himself to be in Jesus Christ is a gracious and merciful God who blots out, who cleanses, who removes our sins. But this leads us to our second point, and that is the challenge of our repentance. You find this in verses 3 through 6 as the psalm continues. David prays, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. There are two challenges that we actually find here. In these verses, the first is the challenge of what we can call rigorous honesty. David acknowledges his sins before God. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. If you're unfamiliar with David's story, it's a horrific one. He is caught in adultery. He has impregnated another man's wife. He then attempts to cover it up and then has him murdered and he's exposed by the preacher. David had a great deal to own up to. And it takes a great deal of candor, though, to then own up to that before God. 
to speak our guilt to him. But you notice what David doesn't do. He doesn't hide. He doesn't act like it didn't happen. He just simply articulates his guilt to God. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And friends, that's the challenge that meets us when we come into God's presence. Will we repent with that rigorous kind of honesty? Because you see, David then turns to say that he's only sinned against God. And people are often confused by that. Because David obviously sinned against his neighbors. He sinned against many people in what he did. So why does it say that only against God I have sinned? What David means by this is just the primary person that he has offended is God. In all the ways that he wronged his neighbor, but what he had primarily done is he had defied God and gone his own way. And this is what sin is, and it's why it's so offensive to God. Because when God gives us good commands, he's not just giving us rules that are designed to restrict us and test us to see if we really love him. But God's laws and his commands are designed for our good. They're given to us for our flourishing. It is the wisdom of God that's expressed in every one of his commands. And so when we turn from them, we're actually spurning God. We don't just disobey him, we break a relationship. And this is why sin is so offensive to God. Because we choose our own way. We turn to ourselves rather than turning to him the source of life. And this is what we have to own in that rigorous honesty is the ways in which we defy him and go on our own hard paths. The second challenge that we find inside of repentance, though, is that we see that repentance goes beyond just what we've done. It also concerns what we are. Follow again in verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Here, David goes past simply the things that he had done in his recent past, and he moves into a statement about who he is. See, he understood something that's difficult for us all to get our minds around, that he sinned not simply because he had done something wrong or had a weak moment, but he sinned because fundamentally in his nature he is a sinner. And so David moves from the particular and the specific instances of his sin, and he moves to then own this broader category that brought his whole life under condemnation. And he grieves it, that he's part of a broken race, just like every one of us. And this is what's critical for us in our repentance is that we always involve these two things, the specific sins that we've committed, and then also this general broad confession, and we recognize that we're sinners, and we lament, and we grieve that. And friends, this is what we do in corporate worship week by week. You're given a call to confession. And then we observe a moment of silence. And that moment of silence is not about just a formality or an aesthetic that moment of silence is for you to spiritually exercise. Because one thing that I cannot do for you inside the context of a worship service is I cannot lay out every sin that you've committed that week. It's impossible. I don't even care to. 
But what I do desire is for you to have that private moment where you confess your specific sins specifically. You do business with God on that private, private level. And then we move to a general moment, a broad moment, in which we confess the ways that we've sinned against what God wants for us in loving him and loving our neighbor. It moves from specific to general. And that's the way and shape of Christian liturgy. And so worship is designed to be a spiritual workout for you, in which it's not to be done for you up front, but in which you are to engage with those motions. Because this is the path and the way of Christian repentance. And David leads us just into it. And so this is the challenge of repentance. It's getting rigorously honest. And then it's owning the broad category into which we fit. Understanding that we're sinners and receiving the insult to our pride. And all that the gospel says that we are. The third thing to consider about repentance this morning though is also its orientation. In verses 7 through 9, David once again repeats three things in which he asks for forgiveness. He asks that God would purge him. He asks that God would wash him. And he asks that God would hide his face from his sins. He had done horrific things. But it is important to note that there's a shift that takes place in verse 10. Follow with me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And here, David is not simply asking that God would forgive his sin. He knew something. That if he just asked God to forgive his sin, he would leave his character largely untouched. And God is not content with that. David furthers his prayer. And in true Christian repentance, we always must take this next step. He furthers his prayer in repentance, asking that God would create in him a new heart. Asking that God would renew him with a right spirit. Asking that God would uphold him with a willing spirit. He's asking for a new orientation in which he would turn away from himself and that he would then turn to God. On the backside of asking for forgiveness, this is what we must seek. Because you see, my greatest need is not just the need for pardon from sin for a particular wrong. I certainly have done those this past week. But my greatest need is also the need for deliverance from my predicament as a sinner. I need to cry out to God in that dependence day by day. Create in me a clean heart. Restore me. Renew me. Uphold me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me. That's the dependence of repentance for the Christian in which we engage in this movement of turning away from ourselves to turn to God. This once again is informed by the way that we do Christian worship. 
on the backside of confession. You'll note that we then turn to profess our faith and to listen to the word of God. Because what are we seeking at that moment? We're seeking orientation. We're seeking to be taught by God, to be led in the way of what new obedience will look like. And then we consecrate ourselves to God on the backside of that, praying and asking for God's help, bringing our offerings and our sacrifices to God. This is the logic of Christian worship in which we're rehearsing all these wonderful things that we see enshrined for us in the Bible. But this is the work of God in true repentance is to orient us to himself. The final thing that we see here in Psalm 51, though, is also the fruit of repentance. You follow with this in verses 13 through 19. For the one who's restored day by day to the joy of salvation, what we note in these verses is that things begin to happen that go beyond us. Something new begins to go on, not just in us or for us, but now outside of us. This grace begins to build up and edify the community around us. Begins in verse 13, where David speaks of teaching fellow sinners the ways of God. That on the other side of his experience of grace, he longs to tell others about this gracious and merciful God. He can't just contain it to himself. His evangelism is driven by a doxology, a desire to praise God, to extol him. And so it begins to translate into his horizontal relationships. In verse 15, we see that he requests very beautifully that God would open his lips and that his mouth will then proclaim his praise. And so there not only is teaching, but there is praise and extolling of God and announcing his goodness. And this is why Christian worship can never be lazy. And it's why Christian worship is never what happens up here. We're simply your trainers. But the desire of Christian worship is that you exercise, that you come and God opens your lips and frees you to praise him. And that it builds up those around you. In verse 17, we learn that God doesn't desire sacrifices. This verse is confusing for many people because if you look in verse 19, you then learn that God does desire right sacrifices. <laughs> and in the Old Testament, there was a sacrificial system. It was all foreshadowing and pointing to Jesus Christ, the sacrifice that was to come. And so what is spoken of here is an empty ceremonial observance of the law. God didn't want that. He wanted a contrite spirit that engaged with the sacrificial economy, that pointed to Jesus. He wanted right sacrifice. And friends, that's what God now welcomes us into, not with the blood of animals, but as we look in faith to Jesus, that we offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and praise in and through him, as we've seen in the book of Hebrews. And so repentance begins to orient us to these things, that we begin to teach and proclaim. We give testimony to all the grace of God and the ways that he's intersected our lives and we offer ourselves fully to him. 
See, it's in repentance that the church finds its true vocation. It's calling from God. It's in repentance that we actually have something valuable to say to the world. It's in repentance that God becomes great in our midst because we find contrition and humility. We find lowliness. We live in dependence. And so this talk of the Christian life being one that is a way of repentance is essential for our own flourishing as a body. If we don't get this, we don't get anything. We have to know what it is to be honest before God. We have to understand what it is to be a sinner before God. We have to know what it is to cry out in forgiveness for that, that God would have mercy on us for our failures. And then to turn to him and ask that he sustain us, that he uphold us, that he be the source of a new orientation and a direction towards him. And then that the fruits of, those, of that repentance would then flow out from us, that God would use broken and humble vessels for himself. And so I invite you over these seven weeks to embrace the life and way of repentance, to meditate richly upon it, not so that you can be done at the end of seven weeks. It doesn't work that way. But perhaps that you can encounter it in a new and fuller way and that in that repentance you would know the joy of your salvation, that it is the abundant mercy of God. It is the steadfast love of God given to you in Jesus that brings all of this about. And may he, may he open your lips and may your mouths proclaim his praise. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would lead us in the way of repentance and that you would do so by persuading us of your steadfast love and of your great abundant mercy that is ours in Jesus. And so free us from our sins to confess them to you and to turn and to ask that you create in us a new heart. Uphold us, sustain us, renew us day by day, and may the fruits of repentance flow from our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.